0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you don't know me, my name is Andrew. And today we are in the second to last week in our series, Confronting Christianity. And if you've been with us, I hope it has been a good series for you. I know for myself, it has been a blessing just to walk through this series as we've been looking at different uh, challenging questions that we as Christians, but especially people in our culture, maybe asking about Christianity. And as we've been going through this series, if you... Uh, are new with us and haven't been with us for this series, we've been utilizing questions from a book called Confronting Christianity by a lady named Rebecca McLaughlin. And we've just been using that book to kind of help frame out our series. And each week as we've been asking a tough question, we've been doing that because we want to wrestle with things that matter, especially when we think about reaching out to our community. We want to be able to have uh, answers for people as they ask kind of those tough questions. And so some of the questions have been, been challenging. And today we have Another good question, because today's question is this. Today's question is, is Christianity homophobic? Is Christianity homophobic? And maybe you don't know what homophobic is. That's okay. I'll explain it. Um, Maybe you know what a phobia is. You know, a phobia is a fear, like a a big fear of something, or a disdain or hostility towards something, like arachnophobia. Has anyone heard of arachnophobia before? The fear of spiders? Spiders. Is anyone willing to admit they have arachnophobia here? All right, I'm sure there are some. Yes, I'm sure. I knew there would be at least one person. Yeah, a a phobia isn't just like a little fear of something. A phobia is a big fear of something. And uh, if you're homophobic or if you have homophobia, it means that you have an aversion to or hostility towards or a fear of people who have same-sex attractions. That's what homophobia is. And so the question is, is Christianity homophobic? It's basically asking the question, um, are Christians fearful of people who might either claim to be or we might label as gay, lesbian, bisexual, homosexual, things like that. So to clarify, today we're not just looking at, hey, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? We're going to look at that, but we're, we're trying to answer this question. Is Christianity homophobic? Or I think better yet, should christianity be homophobic and so that's what we're going to be looking at today and as we as we get rolling there's just a couple things i want us to keep in mind the first is this we can't talk about everything today this topic is just too big for just one sunday morning so we're not going to be able to hit everything the second is the fact that this conversation is better done as a dialogue and what i mean by that is hey if you have a question or a thought or i say something and you agree with it or you disagree with it whatever this, this topic is better done when, when, we, when we dialogue about it because, again, there's so much to it. There's so many uh, different nuances to this topic. And the last one is this, that we are talking about real people with real stories. Sometimes a topic like this can be kind of talked about as like homosexuality, and it's kind of out here as this, this thing, this abstract thing, but I want us to tie it to real people with real stories, because it impacts real people with real stories. And it changes the way I think we approach it when we remember that there are real people with real stories. And before I dive in, I just want to share a little bit from where I'm coming from in my story so that um, you know uh, uh, where I'm coming from as I speak into this. For me, in my experience, uh, same-sex attraction has never been something that has been part of my story or part of my own personal journey. It just isn't part of that but growing up in in middle school high school in college at lancaster bible college and still now i've known people i've had friends who have had same-sex attraction i've known some who were not followers of jesus and i've known some who desperately wanted to follow jesus with all of their lives and they were great friends and still are great friends who i am encouraged by the way they follow after jesus i've known men and i've known women some of them have been acquaintances where I've just kind of known who they are. And then others I've been extremely close to. And so though same-sex attraction is not part of my own personal story. I've known some people who that is part of their story. And I've known some people who have been really hurt by the church and who want nothing to do with Jesus. And then I've known others who have been extremely encouraged and challenged in their faith and are following Jesus with all of their heart. This past week, I actually got to talk to one of my friends who is a follower of Jesus, he's married, but he's lived with same-sex attraction his whole life. And we had a great conversation about this morning, and he was taught as he was talking about same-sex attraction and his growing up in the church. This is what he said. He said that same-sex attraction is the most isolating thing I've ever experienced. Here's a man who grew up in the church who loves Jesus, who I am just so encouraged and challenged by his faith. And yet he shared with me, this is the thing that I felt most isolated by in my whole life. The fact that I've had this and I haven't been sure how to handle it within the church context. And so again, today we're talking about real people with real stories. And today in a room this size with people listening in, this this topic is going to hit home for some people. More or less for, for others, depending on your story whether it's something extremely personal to you or you know someone, a child, a spouse, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker It's connected to real people with real stories. All right, so I want to dive in, and we're going to go first to God's Word and see what does God's Word say about God's design for marriage and for homosexual behavior. And I just want to kind of frame it out. We're not going to spend the whole time in these passages, some of the kind of typical passages people go to for a topic like this. But uh, we just want to get a good grounding there. And so uh, first we'll go to God's design for marriage. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2, where God, before, before sin enters the world, before humanity falls and God, humans' relationship with God is broken, we see God creating man and woman. And we see him establishing marriage as this thing between one biological man and one biological woman in a covenant relationship for life. And that it's within that safe boundary, that safe covenant relationship where sexual activity is allowed, and God says it's very good. And we see in uh, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus reaffirms God's creation for marriage as he's talking about it. And so we see uh, before the fall, before sin enters the world, what God has created for marriage and his design for it. And we see Jesus affirming that, and that anything outside of that, anything outside of that goes against God's design for sexual expression, sexual activity, and whatnot. When it comes to homosexual behavior, the Bible doesn't have tons and tons of places where it talks about it. But there are some. In the Old Testament, we see Leviticus 18 and 20 where it's talked about. And it's not like like those chapters are all about it. It's just mentioned in there alongside other things that are outside of God's design for sexuality and marriage and so forth. In the New Testament, we see Romans 1, and we see 1 Corinthians 6, and we see that, again, homosexual behavior is is talked about as something that is outside of God's design. It's never put on a pedestal as the ultimate sin or anything like that, but it is talked about as going against God's design. And I think it's important to see the Bible talks about homosexual behavior. That word behavior, I think, is important for us to keep in mind when we talk about homosexuality, what the Bible says. But if you want more information about those specific verses, because we're not going to dive into any of those verses, because uh, looking around the room, I know I know most of you, and I know that we've gone to these verses before here at GFC, um, and there's lots of good resources that you can go to to find uh, um, more information about these passages. But this is where, where I'm going to be coming from. from. The Bible is God's word, and I do see that it puts forth God's design for marriage, and anything outside of that, including homosexual behavior, is against God's design. But if you want more information about those verses, uh, if you have Right Now Media, there's a guy named Preston Sprinkle who you can look up. He has uh, a resource called Sexuality in the Bible, and he goes through just five- to eight-minute videos on all of these verses. And uh, he's a pastor, he has a PhD, he's way smarter than I am, and I'd encourage you to listen to him. And if you don't have Right Now Media, come talk to me, talk to Pastor Corey. We'd love to get that to you. So that's God's design for marriage. That's what we see God talking about homosexual behavior in the Bible. But I don't think that's enough for us to answer the question, is Christianity homophobic or should Christianity be homophobic? And so I want us to go to the the main character in the Bible. I want us to go to Jesus. And I want us to see how did Jesus interact with people? What did Jesus have to say about these things? Because I think that will be really important for us trying to answer this question. And first and foremost, Jesus, When we, if you open up your Bible and you read Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John, the Gospels, you will never see Jesus say anything about homosexuality. Not once. It's never recorded for us. He may have said something about it um, 2,000 years ago, but the Gospel writers never included it. So sometimes people have taken that and seen, well, Jesus must have been okay with it because he never said anything about it. And I don't think that's necessarily a good uh, interpretation because whenever we do see Jesus talking about marriage, about sexuality, about human relationships in general, we never see him taking things from the Old Testament and loosening the reins, so to speak. We actually see him kind of tightening the reins. All right, And the best place to see this is, on, is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And that's actually where we've been as a church earlier this year, and we're going to come back to later this year. But here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we see Jesus' um, ethical, moral teachings for how people should live. And if you've read them, you, you don't walk away from them thinking, wow, that's going to be super easy. No, you read them regardless of, of what your sexual activity is or expression is or whatever, regardless of who you are, you read the Sermon on the Mount and it's like, whoa. Jesus is calling people to a high radical moral standard. It was radical in Jesus' day and it's still radical today. And for all of us who are Jesus followers in this room, if we went around and said, hey, have you lived out the Sermon on the Mount perfectly this past week? None of us would be able to say we have. The Sermon on the Mount... Is is good and it is beautiful the calling Jesus is calling us towards as Jesus followers and as a, as humanity, but it is hard, it is challenging, and so it's important for us to go from Matthew five six and seven where Jesus is calling us to the, this high radical moral ethical standard, and let's see how he interacts with people a chapter or two later, because if we go from the Sermon on the Mountain to Matthew uh, chapter eight and nine we see Jesus interacting with and ministering to people. And in chapter 8, we see him healing a man of leprosy. We see him healing men with demons or with demon possession. And we see him interacting with a Roman centurion. Now, if you don't know what a Roman centurion is, uh, Rome was the governing authority over Israel during the day. And a Roman centurion was an officer in the Roman army. And a Roman centurion would have had power. They would have had authority. And what do you think? Do you think a Roman centurion was like the pinnacle of moral, ethical standards for people? Like would people look at them and say, man, we should be more humble like the Roman centurions. Like that, Do you think that was a thing? No, a Roman centurion would have had power, and they would have used it, and they would have abused it. Think about all the people that they could have done things to. I mean, th- their own soldiers, how they could have um, used their power to lord it over them. Or think about the Jewish people, the Israelites, how uh, widows and children and women. And just think, it doesn't take much of an imagination to picture a Roman centurion using and abusing their power. And yet when Jesus is interacting with this man, he doesn't say, wait, time out. Did you hear my sermon up on the mountain? Did you hear what I, what I just preached? I'll, I'll interact with you once you hear that. No, he chooses to interact with him, even though Jesus knows the way this man would have would have lived his life. You skip a, a chapter later to Matthew chapter nine, and you see Jesus interacting with a tax collector. And for the Jewish people, a tax collector probably would have been even uh, lower on the totem pole than a Roman centurion, because a tax collector would have been a fellow Jewish person whom Rome had hired to collect a tax, and so they would have gone around, and they would have had again authority and power. They would have collected the tax from Rome, but then they would have increased the taxes, so that they could pocket some for themselves. They would have stolen from their own people. And again, they would have had power, and they would have used it, and they would have abused it. And yet, how do we see Jesus interacting with the tax collector in Matthew 9? We actually see Jesus calling Matthew the tax collector to become one of his 12 disciples. And again, he doesn't say, did you hear my sermon? Are you living to that standard? No, he goes and he interacts with him. And he shows him love. And Preston Sprinkle, in his series, he says it like this. He says, when Jesus ends the sermon, that's the Sermon on the Mount, and he goes to reach out to people, he demonstrates an amazing amount of grace, compassion, and forgiveness towards people who fall short of that standard. He doesn't lead with the law. He leads with love. Think about that. Jesus radically calls humanity to such high standards, and then when he goes and he interacts with people who aren't living to that standard, who can't live with that standard, he never dangles it over their head. He leads with love. He leads with himself. He leads with service and care and grace and compassion. And I think we see this best in John chapter 8, where Jesus interacts with a woman who was caught in a sexual sin. In John chapter 8, the teachers of the law bring a woman caught in adultery before Jesus. And this is, this is what it says. It says, Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. You can put the next, thanks. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then continuing on into verse 10, it finishes up, Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This woman sinned. She was caught in adultery. Jesus literally preached about that in the Sermon on the Mount. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about, hey, if you even look at someone and lust after them, it's like you've committed adultery with them in your heart. And when this woman is brought before Jesus, does he he throw away the truth? No, he doesn't. He tells her to go and sin no more. He never says, what you did is okay. No, but he leads with love. He leads with love. He starts by showing her compassion. He doesn't want her to sin. No, but he leads with love because Jesus loved people into holiness. He didn't scold people into holiness. He loved people into holiness. And holiness is this idea of of being set apart from sin, of being without sin, of living the way that God wants us to to, to be living, to be living like Jesus lived. And so Jesus, when interacting with broken, sinful people, he led with love. He didn't lead with the law. And so where do we start when we encounter people who are different from us? especially those who believe different things than us. What is our first inclination? To dangle the truth over them or to lead with love? I think it's important for us to think about that as we think about this question. Is Christianity homophobic or should Christianity be homophobic? I think Jesus' example can teach us a lot. Another thing that I think we need to keep in mind during this Discussion is the fact that uh, humanity has a universal problem. There's a problem that everyone in here has, including me. Everyone listening, everyone who's ever been born except Jesus has had, and that is the problem of sin. And Romans 3:23 sums it up really well for us. It says, "For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, meaning we all go outside of God's design for the way we all should be living." We've all done that. We've all done that. And if we went around this room, and if we surveyed everyone and said, hey, what are the three or four things you are most tempted to sin? Like, what are those ways, the the three or four top ways that you are most tempted to sin? I bet if we went around to each person, there would be a variety of lists in here. And then if we flip the question, say, hey, what are the three or four things that you're least likely to be tempted towards sinning? Again, we would all have, I think, a, there'd be a variety of lists of things that are like, hey, maybe on your list is gossip on someone else's list is lying. Maybe on someone else's list, uh, murder is there and maybe someone else's list, it's stealing. Like, there, we're all tempted towards different things, yet we all have the same problem. It's sin and brokenness even though the fact that we're all maybe tempted towards different things, there's different desires and attractions of our heart that may lead you this way and me this way, but it's all going against God's design. And in the book of James, we see this uh, book of James, James chapter 1, verse 14 to 15, talks about how our desires lead us into these sinful temptations. and says, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Do you see the progression in, in that verse, how there's desires that then lead to temptation? And that when those temptations are given into, there's sinful actions. And as those grow and grow, it eventually leads to our downfall. It leads to our death. And there's a movie that I think really does a good job illustrating James 1, 14 to 15. It's the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Has anyone ever seen that movie? Not, not the new one, like the old classic one, with Gene Wilder. Like that one, if you're going to watch one, watch that one. It's so good. But in this movie, if you've never seen it, Willy Wonka has this amazing chocolate factory that the whole world wants to see. And he puts forth this contest. And six or eight kids win this contest. They find the golden tickets. They go to the chocolate factory. And as they're walking around, they walk into these different rooms on the tour And each room plays on the attractions and the desires of a different kid. They walk into the first room, and Augustus Gloop, what a name, Augustus Gloop, he sees this chocolate river, and his his eyes just light up. He goes over to this chocolate river, and he bends out, and he's just gorging himself on this chocolate river. And Willy Wonka is, like, pulling out his hair. He's like, what are you doing? And Augustus falls in. He gets sucked up the pipe, and then the Oompa Loompas sing their song. And it's a great scene because they sing about Augustus' gluttony and how he just wants more and more food. They go to another room, a girl named Veruca Salt. Who if you've seen the movie, you know she, she's just she's so annoying. She's so bratty. She always gets what she wants. Her, she, no one ever says no to her. And she goes into this room where there are these geese that lay golden eggs, and she starts singing this song about how she wants everything. And she starts singing. She says, "I don't care how I want it now." Like that—that's the main line in her song. And she she starts singing, and she eventually falls down the chute. And again, the oompa loopas sing, and they sing about how materialistic she is and how greedy and selfish she is. And I think you and I, we can be like a Gustus Gloop or a Salt. We may go into a different room in Willy Wonka's factory, and you know, Veruca's room may not be something we want, but maybe the Chocolate River, like a of Scoop, maybe that's where we want to be, or, an even, or a different room. We all have a variety of desires and attractions that lead us towards different things. And it's when we, it's when we give in to those temptations that it be, then becomes sin. Because we all sin, regardless of whether our desires or attractions are sexual or non-sexual, we all have that reality where there's things in this word pulling on our heartstrings and they, they're things that go against God's good design. Even good desires of our heart, we often take and we, we corrupt them and distort them because of our sin. And so oftentimes we can be like a goose to scoop or Veruca Salt, where we see something, we want something, and instead of following after Jesus, we do our own thing. We all are, are sinful, and we're all tempted to go against God's good design. Now, being tempted to go against God's good design is very, 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 very different than giving in to that temptation. See, Jesus was tempted, and so we have to separate the temptation from the sin because Jesus was tempted. You can read about that in Matthew 4. and the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 4.15, he's talking about Jesus as our great high priest in heaven, ministering on our behalf now. And this is what it says. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So there's a difference between uh, temptation and giving into temptation. Temptation. There's a difference between Augustus group desiring the chocolate river and Augustus falling into the chocolate river. There's a difference between all of the things that pull on our heartstrings, us being tempted towards gossip or or stealing or lying or drunkenness or pride or self-pity or worry or doubt or, or whatever it is. There's so many things pulling on our heartstrings. There's a difference between being tempted and taking that next step and giving into that temptation. And I think this is important for us to realize that we have a universal problem called sin and we all have a variety of attractions and desires, sexual and non-sexual ones, that we're all pulled towards. I think it's important for us to keep that in mind because when it comes to this topic, I think the church, the church as a whole, has at times taken homosexual behavior and put it on a pedestal and said, hey, this is somehow more outside of God's design than than our other sins. It's kind of elevated to a spot that I I don't think is very helpful. Because at the end of the day, sin is sin. Sin is always the thing that goes against God's design, whether it's gossip or murder. Now, I understand that there are different consequences for different sins. You know, you probably won't go to jail if you gossip about your friend. But you probably will go to jail if you murder your friend. Like, I, I get that there's different consequences and and degrees of things here and now. But at the end of the day, it both goes against God's good design for humanity. But sometimes we take certain things and we say, hey, this is more against God's design. And I don't think that's right. There was a book I read once when I was at LBC, and it was a book about this topic. And the author was a Christian man wanting to follow Jesus. He held to the authority of God's word and what it taught about marriage and sexuality. But he had same-sex attraction. He had it his whole life. And in the book, he was talking about how growing up in the church, he he was often made to feel like like the answer to his homosexual desires was for him to have heterosexual desires. He was made to feel like, hey, if I lusted after the opposite gender, I would be more accepted and less sinful if I, instead of lusting after the same gender. And he talked about how he was like, he said, I feel like I'm trading one sin for another sin. And I I agree with him. And, And he talked about how, hey, the answer, this is in his words, he talked about how the answer to his homosexual desires wasn't heterosexuality. The answer to his homosexuality was holiness the answer to the desires of his heart was to say i'm going to put jesus first and i'm going to say no to these temptations and i'm going to live the way god wants me to live and he went on to talk about hey how hey holiness is actually the answer to all of our sexual attractions and desires because we're all sinful broken people with the same problem sin regardless of the attraction we've all fallen short of the glory of god we all need jesus and we need to live like jesus and for jesus and so the answer to all of us is holiness the answer for all of our broken desires and attractions isn't homosexuality or heterosexuality the answer is holiness to live like jesus to become like jesus to be with jesus to know jesus to love jesus Because remember, Jesus didn't scold people into holiness. Jesus loved people into holiness, regardless of the way their sinful attractions and desires manifested themselves in the world. And so I think that's important for us to remember when we're trying to answer this question. Is Christianity homophobic? Should Christianity be homophobic? I think we need to keep that in mind. That the answer to all of our broken sexualities, because we're all broken sinful people, the answer to all of that isn't to get our attractions right, it's to live for Jesus. Because regardless of our sexual attractions, we're all sinful people. And at the end of the day, what really, is it really more sinful if, if you're uh, attracted to the opposite gender, if you lust after the opposite gender, or if you lust after the same gender? Lust is lust. It's, it's the same thing. And people with, with attractions to the opposite gender can commit just as much sexual sin as someone who's attracted to the same gender. I mean, think about all the the use of pornography. Think about um, sex outside of marriage. Think about adultery. Think about, even within marriage, how sexual activity can be used to manipulate a spouse, either uh, to do certain things or whatnot. the marital rape and things like that. There's... There is so much sexual brokenness in this world for people who are attracted to the opposite gender. And so, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, at least in my opinion, when it comes to the attraction of the heart. We all have the same problem, sin. We all need holiness. We all need to say no to that sin. And so because we all have the same problem, we all need the same solution because the answer to all of our sexual brokenness and shame that that so many people are living with is Jesus. It's Jesus. We need Jesus. Because at the end of the day, our identity was only ever meant to be found in him. No matter what our sexual attractions are, we were never meant to find our identity in our sexuality. We were created to find our identity in God, no matter what your sexual attractions are, we're meant to find our identity in Jesus and in today's culture, people are really encouraged to find their identity, right? Have you ever heard language like that? like go like search your heart, find out who you really are like that's something that's taught in our in our culture these days to, to find out who you are, to search inside, to find your identity, and then to express it. And oftentimes that identity, not always, but oftentimes that identity is connected in somehow to our sexuality. And so our culture often says, hey, discover what your sexual expression is, what your sexual attractions are, and then just express it to the world. Live it out. And we see that within the LGBTQ plus community, and we see it outside of the LGBTQ plus community. For our whole culture, it's, it's just there. Hey, find out who you're attracted to and express that and live that out because that's who you really are. You need to find it out. But our identity was never meant to be this internal journey to find out who we think we are in our hearts because remember, we're sinful, broken people, so we can't find out our identity. We need our identity to be told to us from outside of us, from the God who created us and created us in specific ways. And so our identity was always meant to be found in God, not in our sexuality. And we see in Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God made humans as sexual beings with genders, but we don't see that our sexuality is elevated to a place of our identity. It's a part of who we are, but it's not our ultimate identity. In Genesis 1 and 2, we're created as God's image bearers to be in relationship with him, to live with him and for him forever. But then sin enters the world and it breaks that image of God within humanity. And ever since then, people have been trying to find out who are we? Who do I think I am? And oftentimes because of our sin, that, that identity search gets corrupted and twisted. And oftentimes things like our sexuality get elevated to a place that they were never was never meant to be and this idea goes against what our culture says our culture says hey find your identity within yourself and express it but the bible teaches that our true identity is meant to be in jesus and the amazing thing is that even though our sin has broken our identity our identities can be restored regardless of your past sins regardless even of our sexual ones Maybe you're here today and pornography has been a big deal in your life. Or maybe um, there's shame from different past relationships you've had. Or maybe there's currently different temptations you're struggling with. Maybe you've committed adultery. Or maybe you've engaged in homosexual activity. At the end of the day, any sexual sin, the shame of it can be taken away in Jesus. In Jesus, there is restoration. In Jesus, there is healing to all of that pain because our world is full of so much brokenness, especially sexual brokenness. God created it as a good thing, but it's been taken and lifted to a place of an ultimate thing, and it's been used and abused. And I know within this room and people listening online, there's so much pain and brokenness because of the way we as individuals and the way our society has used sexuality. So where does your true identity lie? Because our culture says, hey, find it out within yourself, express it. Does it lie in Jesus or not? 2 Corinthians uh, is one of my favorite passages. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about how our identity should be in Jesus. And this is what it says. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you know, it doesn't exclude anybody because of past things. It says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Think about that. That a, is a, a very a matter-of-fact statement, that if you are in Jesus, if you put your faith and trust in Him, you are a new creation, that old Broken, sinful, corrupted creation is gone. Now we still live in this sinful world, and so there are ramifications to our sin, but your identity, who you are, what defines you, what your meaning is, what your purpose is, all of those things don't have to be in the shame of past sins. They don't have to be in sexual brokenness. They're in Jesus. Because as verse 21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And righteousness is, again, again, it's it's similar to holiness. It's like it's having right standing before God. And it's because although Jesus was tempted, he didn't sin. He now can take all of our sin, even our sexual shame and brokenness. And we can now be new creations. Every single one of us, regardless of of the way our sinful heart says, hey, I'm attracted to this, or I desire this, or I'm attracted to that, or I desire that, regardless of how we've been tempted or how we've given into temptations, there is healing and restoration and new identity in Jesus. And if you're here today and you're a Jesus follower, I want you to hear that and remember that and to live out of that. And if you aren't a Jesus follower, I want you to know that that's what Jesus offers you, a new identity in him, the fixed identity that sin has taken away from us. So we come back to this question, is Christianity homophobic? And we take some of these things of the way Jesus encountered people, how he led with love, the fact that we're all sinful and broken, and we're all tempted towards a variety of things, and the fact that we all need the same solution, which is to have our identity in Jesus. We need to take all of those things to bear on this question. But if we're going to step back and be honest, is Christianity homophobic? If we think about in the past and if we think still today, are there Christians who are fearful of people with same-sex attraction? Are there Christians who have been hostile towards people with same-sex attraction? Then I think sadly we have to say yes. Christians have been homophobic and there are still Christians who are homophobic. And I don't like saying that, but I think if we're going to be honest, we have to admit that. But again, again I think the better question is should Christians be homophobic? And I think the answer is no. Why should we be afraid of people with same-sex attraction? You know, why should we be hostile towards them? I think that's that's not something that we should be as Jesus followers because Jesus has called all of us to those high radical standards and yet we've all fallen short of them so today whether you're here and you're straight you're gay you're bisexual all of us our identity is meant to be not in our sexuality but in Jesus and because of that reality I don't think we should be homophobic As I wrap up today, I just have a couple of things I just want to say as we wrap up. I would really encourage you today, if you are a Jesus follower, to really think about, are you ever homophobic? Have you ever been homophobic? How would you feel if someone you know said, hey, I have same-sex attraction? What would your response be? Again, if we're Jesus followers, are we responding the way Jesus responded to sinful, broken people? Are we responding the way we wanted Jesus to respond to us, in our sin and brokenness? And I'd encourage us, let's listen to people. If someone comes to you, especially if they are a fellow believer in Jesus, and they say, hey, I have same-sex attraction, or I am tempted towards that lifestyle, listen to them. They're a real person with a real story. Even if you can't fully understand or get into their shoes, like, listen to them, show them that they're a human being and that they're not alone. Because that's what my friend felt growing up in the church. He felt isolated, even though he was seeking to live for Jesus. And none of us here should feel isolated, especially if we're seeking to live for Jesus. But if you're here today and you have same-sex attraction, I want you to know that I don't want you to feel isolated here. I want to point you to Jesus and say, hey, your identity needs to be in him just like my identity needs to be in him. You're a broken, sinful person just like I am. I don't fully understand your journey, but I'm here to listen to it. And I'm here to point you to Jesus because that's, that's where all of our identity needs to be. And today as we go out, I want to just point us back to what I said at the beginning. Today's conversation is better done as a dialogue. So if you're here today, because I know today's topic is not always something that everyone agrees on. If you're here today and you have a thought or a question, whether you agree with me or you don't disagree with me, I would love to talk to you. Or I'd at least encourage you to talk to somebody. Because this topic is is so big. I know there's so many real people with real stories. People who have same-sex attraction, who are living in the church or outside of the church, moms and dads with kids or with a spouse or with a neighbor or coworker. There's so many different scenarios. And so I'd encourage you, please continue to have conversation. As Jesus followers, let's help each other wrestle through this topic and to love people well. And lastly, my friend who I mentioned today, he and a number of other friends of his who have same-sex attract- attraction said, hey, if there's anyone from your church, Andrew, who has a question that they can speak into, they said they would be more than happy to answer any questions. These are guys who, who've lived with same-sex attraction for their whole life. Some of them are married, some of them aren't. They all have very different and unique stories. But they're all following Jesus. And so if you have a question She's like, Angie, you can't speak into that. I know I can't speak into everything. I'm not even going to try. But they can speak into it in a way that I think a lot of us probably can't. So if you have a question that they could help answer, again, get that question to me. I'd love to get it to them so that they can answer that question for you. So today, this week, I know today has been a lot. But let's all live out of our identity in Jesus, regardless of where our sinful attractions lead us. And let's follow Jesus's example. Let's lead with love, not the law. Because Jesus, what did he ultimately come to earth to do? To die on the cross for sinful, broken people like me and like everyone here. And so let's take that example and let's live out that example, to a lost world that desperately needs to know Jesus. Because if they don't know we care, they probably don't want to know what we care about. If they don't see Jesus in us, they're probably not going to want to have Jesus come live. in them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love for broken humanity. I know that there's a lot of people here with, with brokenness in all sorts of areas of life, but especially when it comes to our sexualities. We as a a culture and as just individuals, we've messed up. We all have, we've all had brokenness. But thank you so much that you came to earth and that you died on the cross. Thank you that we sang earlier, that it is written that we are forgiven. That is such a beautiful word, forgiveness. May we live in the forgiveness that you've given us in our identities as your sons and daughters. Amen.